during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Welcome to the end. Daniel was a young man of noble birth. He came from the city of Jerusalem, but in Babylon, he went on to become the grand vizier or the prime minister of the greatest nation of the ancient world, the greatest empire of the ancient world up until that point. That was the empire of Babylon. In the second chapter of his book, Daniel tells of a unique experience. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had captured the city of Babylon, had taken Daniel captive as a slave, but had placed him in education in the city of Babylon and was in the process of preparing him to hold an office in that particular city. The Bible says in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, his spirit was troubled, And his sleep broke from him. He had a dream, a vivid dream that was so vivid that he couldn't really sleep for thinking about it. The problem was he could not remember what he had dreamed. For Nebuchadnezzar, this was something that was of incredible importance. Omens and dreams to these ancient emperors were of utmost importance. And so in verse 2, we find that the king commands to call in the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to explain to him what he had dreamed. He wanted to know what was this dream all about. His counsellors, his cabinet, they come in. They stand in front of him. Nebuchadnezzar shares with them this amazing experience that he has had, this vivid dream. He shares with them the importance that it is to him to be able to understand what the dream means. Having done so, he then asks them an important question. Can you explain to me what this dream means? Then the Chaldeans, that's his own family, they speak up. And in verse 4, they say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. They're like, you know, pick us. We're the ones. We can help you out here with the interpretation of this dream. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me. I've forgotten what I've dreamed. And I'm sure that you've had exactly that same kind of experience at some point where you've kind of, you know, forgotten what you dreamed, but remembered that it was a really, really vivid dream. He says, I've forgotten what I dreamed. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to first tell me what I dreamed and then give me the explanation for the dream. At that particular point, Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet became very, very concerned. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most brilliant men of the ancient world, but he wasn't just a brilliant man. Nebuchadnezzar was also a bit of a psychopath, and they knew it. They knew he could be a dangerous person. And so there's a bit of a discussion that ensues from here where the cabinet, his counsellors, they're getting together and they're saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this is not something that we can actually do. We can tell you the meaning for your dream, but we can't tell you what it was that you dreamed. You need to tell us first. Well, Nebuchadnezzar turns around and uh, in what we find to be typical Nebuchadnezzar uh, fashion, he says, look, he says, uh, if you don't answer me what I dreamed, uh, and here in verse 5 he says, uh, with, along with the interpretation, you will be cut into your pieces 
and your houses will be made into a pile of dung. That's the kind of person that Nebuchadnezzar was. And when you understand how these men operated in ancient times and the level of paranoia that was required of them just to survive their rulership, you can kind of see maybe a little bit of why he was the way he was. We also need to remember that Nebuchadnezzar has just thrown off the Assyrian Empire that had terrorized the world into submission up until this particular point. And so maybe Nebuchadnezzar is kind of patterning his empire of what has been modeled to him in the past. Well, his counselors are very, very concerned and the discussion goes backwards and forwards somewhat. And eventually they really put their foot in it rather badly. They answered in verse 10 uh, before the king, there's not a man on the earth that can show the king's matter. There is no king, lord or ruler that asks anything like this of any counsellor. Verse 11, it is a rare thing that the king requires. There is no one else that can show it before the king except, and here's where they make their mistake, I want you to notice this, except the gods whose living place is not with humanity. His dwelling is not with flesh, the Bible says. Now, of course, up until this particular point, These are the men that Nebuchadnezzar has been relying on for day-to-day decisions. These are the men who interpret the omens for him. And of course, in interpreting the omens, in interpreting the dreams, in helping him with his day-to-day decisions, these are the men that for Nebuchadnezzar have been in contact with the gods to get this information. And when they make the statement, you know, the only person who can tell you what you dreamed the other night is the gods who don't dwell, who don't live with humanity. Well, then from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it's like, well, if the gods know the answer, go and ask them. In effect, what they've done is they've admitted that they've just been making stuff up and they're not actually in contact with the gods at all. The Bible says for this cause or for this reason, the king was angry and very furious. I kind of like the way the Bible describes it there. It's a little bit like of an old English way of saying he lost it epically. And he gives a command to destroy his entire cabinet. But not only is he going to destroy his entire cabinet, he's going to wipe out anyone who is under their influence. He goes after the students in the colleges. He's after everybody. And in the process, of course, uh, the Bible tells the story how Arioch comes around to Daniel, who is just a very young man at this time, a teenage boy, and is like, well, you know, it's kind of like this. You've been marked for execution, so you need to come with me. And Daniel's like, well, what's this all about? And Arioch explains it. And so Daniel asks for an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. I find this interesting because Nebuchadnezzar must have been incredibly impressed to find out what this dream was all about because he gives an audience to this teenage kid. As you got this teenage kid, he walks in there in front of Nebuchadnezzar who is the sovereign ruler of the greatest empire on the planet. Daniel stands in front of Nebuchadnezzar and says, you know, there's a God in heaven who can actually answer this for you. Uh, just give me time and I will ask him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he clearly wanted to know the answer of what this dream was all about. And so he gives time 
to Daniel. Daniel goes home and the Bible tells a story about how he has a prayer meeting. He gathers three of his friends together. They have this prayer meeting together and you can imagine their lives are on the line. You can only imagine how they are praying. And I guess the first miracle in my mind that happened that night was that Daniel went to sleep. Don't know how I would have gone going to sleep if my life had been on the line. And while Daniel sleeps, God does three things for Daniel. Number one, he gives him the same dream that he had given to Nebuchadnezzar. Number two, he gives him an explanation for the dream, which is something that he had not done for Nebuchadnezzar. Number three, and most importantly, he makes sure that when Daniel wakes up the next morning, Daniel can still remember what the dream was all about, unlike Nebuchadnezzar. And so the next day, Daniel goes in before the greatest ruler on the planet. And Daniel stands there in front of Nebuchadnezzar and first of all highlights the fact that, you know, his cabinet, his counselors that have been relying on these false gods have been unable to answer the dream. But then he goes on to say, there's a God in heaven and he has shown you a vision about the end of the world. Think about that. You have a pagan king, a nature worshipper, and the ruler and creator of the entire universe has bypassed all of his people and come to Nebuchadnezzar and given to Nebuchadnezzar the key to the end. We can read it two and a half thousand years later. And two and a half thousand years later, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar received at this particular time is so much more relevant than what it was when Nebuchadnezzar received it. We should put it to the test and we should find out, you know, has this dream really stood the test of time? When Daniel says the God of heaven has given you a dream that applies to the end and it's going to tell you, about the end, and it's going to tell you how the end ends. Can we really trust it? Has it borne the test of time? Two and a half thousand years later, he stands in front of Nebuchadnezzar and begins to tell Nebuchadnezzar something that he had dreamed several nights before, something that Nebuchadnezzar himself could not even remember. It's not like Daniel could have, you know, picked this up through some harem gossip or something like this because Nebuchadnezzar himself hadn't been able to share it with anyone else. I don't know about you, but if I was Nebuchadnezzar at that particular point, that would have definitely caught my attention. And as he begins to tell Nebuchadnezzar about the dream, he describes a couple of things that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the first of them being a great image standing on the earth. And the head of the image was made out of Gold, the chest of silver, the thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet part of iron and part of clay. And then as he's watching this great image, he sees this stone cut out by supernatural power. The stone comes hurtling down through space and it hits this image on its feet. It smashes the whole thing to a thousand pieces. And then the stone that hits the image becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar sitting there is like, that's exactly what I dreamed. How is this possible? But now he wants to know the interpretation. And Daniel says this, this is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. 
You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength and glory. Wherever the children of men live, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven has he given into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. At which point Nebuchadnezzar would have been kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of used to that. Every time I have a dream, my cabinet comes in and tells me that, you know, I'm number one and that we're going to establish an empire here that is going to last forever. But the next words of Daniel are going to have a certain ring of authenticity that is unusual for Nebuchadnezzar and would have definitely caught his attention because it goes on to say this, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, And then a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. So very simply what we have here is an image made of various metals. And these metals are symbolic. They are codes, symbols in metals, codes in metals for kingdoms that would come. Daniel basically says, hey, uh, the sad reality is, is the Babylonian Empire that you have established to last, you know, for the next thousand years or whatever it is that you're planning on, it's actually going to be conquered and it's going to be conquered by an inferior nation, an inferior empire. And that one's going to be conquered and then that one is going to be conquered. But then he goes on and he talks about these feet of iron and clay. What are the feet of iron and clay all about? That's kind of strange. It says, where you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom will be divided. There will be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw iron mixed with miry clay, as the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay. So the kingdom will be partly strong and partly broken. You know, you can't really compare clay or ceramic to the strength of iron, can you? But then it says... Something even more interesting. Where you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, they will mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they will not stick together. Even as iron is not mixed with clay. These are two elements, you can mix them together. They're not going to stick to each other. Now that's fascinating. We've got a couple of ways that we can decode what this image is all about. First of all, the Bible tells us exactly what the head of gold symbolizes. The head of gold symbolizes the Babylonian Empire. Then you can go to our encyclopedia or history book or just look it up on Wikipedia, wherever you want, and ask, who was it that conquered the Babylonians? And you're going to find that they were conquered by the Persians, the Medo-Persian coalition uh, that formed and then conquers the Babylonians. Then you can ask yourself, well, if... That's who comes next. Who does the thighs of brass symbolize? Well, you simply ask yourself, who conquered the Persian Empire, the Achaemenid dynasty of the Persian Empire? And you're going to find that it was Alexander the Great who comes along and establishes the Greek Empire. And so who conquered the Greek Empire? Well, we all know that the Romans came along and conquered the Greek Empire, established an empire themselves that would last three times longer than any previous empire. It would be the model for all globalist enterprises from that day to this. 
Now, that's not hard for us to understand. From the standpoint of history, we expect history to be repeating itself. And that's exactly what we see taking place right here. But then the Bible says, yeah, you know what? When God is in control, we are not bound to the laws of history where one empire, you know, conquers another, you know, right the way through history and dominates the world. What's going to happen next is that you're going to have this period where it's going to disintegrate. It's going to collapse. It's going to be partly strong and partly broken. You're going to have some strong nations of iron. You can have some that are weak, made of clay, and they're never, ever going to mix together again. That's fascinating, particularly when you compare it with the history of our world and what has actually taken place. You see, the Bible says, they'll mingle themselves with the seed of men. They will never, ever stick together again. Do you realize that from the time that the Roman Empire fell apart, disintegrated and collapsed in 476 AD, until today, there has basically not been a single generation that has ever lived under a period when someone has not been trying to put that old Roman Empire back together again. And it has never taken place so many great men in fact we could think about it this way you got five words here just five words they shall not stick together and those simple five words of scripture have brought to an end the greatest plans of the greatest statesmen the greatest generals the greatest armies, the greatest politicians, the greatest kings and queens our world has ever seen. No one has got past those five words, ever. And there has been an almost continual effort to do so. If we can think back through history, we think of, you know, Charlemagne was one of the early ones who tried to attempt it. Napoleon probably came closer than anybody else. When he read this prophecy in the Bible, he took his Bible and hurled it across, across the room in a fit of rage. Queen Victoria came along. The Bible says they will mingle themselves with the seed of men. They will, they will intermarry with each other. She was the grandmother of Europe. Everybody was married to everybody else. They were all related to each other. Well, that didn't work either because then they have a big family fight. We call that you know, the First World War. And it truly was a family fight. You know, they're writing to each other. You know, dear cousin, we're not going to invade. Two weeks later, what do they do? They invade. That was the nature of the First World War. The Kaiser was so upset by this particular prophecy that he searched through the churches until he found one in the Cathedral of Metz in France. There he found a statue of the prophet Daniel. He cut off its head, put his own head on there. Well, then, of course, Adolf Hitler came to power. And when he was shown the prophecy, he's like, well, that doesn't fit into my plans for Western Europe. But Daniel's prophecy still stands. So the Kaiser's head came off and Daniel's head went back on the statue. But, of course, we know how successful Adolf Hitler was. And we can come down into our modern time right now. You know, we've lived under the European Union, which has been a kind of a, an attempt to reunite the nations of Europe. And look how well that has gone. You know, just in the last few months, we've seen Brexit take place. 
and the whole thing sort of coming to an end, not happening. Uh, the Bible says that they would not stick together and they never have. You know, it's interesting if we go back to Adolf Hitler. Here in Australia, we had a preacher who at that particular time was reading this prophecy. And of course, during the early years of the Second World War, or the early months in particular, you had this blitzkrieg, this lightning war. The world had never seen anything like it. Major nations falling in a matter of weeks. Hitler appeared to be completely unstoppable. A whole lot of preachers around the place were like, yeah, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be saying quite so much about Daniel chapter 2. Well, there was a preacher down here in Newcastle where we're filming this series who set up a big tent. His name was George Burnside, and he put a big banner outside the tent which stated, you know, why Hitler cannot win the war. 300 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ as a result of his preaching Daniel chapter 2 and this prophecy right here. Very patriotic thing for an Australian to do. But what if you're a German? That would be different again. Franz Hassel was drafted during the first draft or the very early drafts in Nazi Germany into the German army. Well knew the prophecy as we have it stated to us right here. He understood it and he was sharing in his tent. He was actually operated involved in Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia part of Army Group South, his unit penetrated further east than any other German unit. And of course, you can read the history of how Germany invaded Russia and they were just pouring into Russia as fast as their tanks could go. You know, they had surrounded Russian army, destroy it, surround another Russian army, destroy it. Nothing was standing in Hitler's way. He was just unstoppable. While they're on this advance, Franz Hassel is mentioning to his friend in his tent one night that, well, actually, Hitler can't win this war. It's an impossibility. Well, you know, that's a rather treasonous statement when you are on the German side. No German soldier will put their life on the line for a lost cause. And it leaked out to his superior officers. You know, who needs uh, enemies when you've got friends like that, right? It leaks out to his superior officers. He was called in to explain himself. And as he was called in to explain himself, he was, uh, as, you can, uh, as, as you can imagine, rather nervous about the conversation. And so he said, well, is this, uh, is this conversation on the record or off the record? A very good question at that particular point. And his superior officers took their helmets off, placed them on the table, which is a signal that you are free to speak. This is off the record. There will be no repercussions from this conversation. And for the next three hours, he gave them a detailed, verse by verse, point by point, Bible study on Daniel 2 and showed that Hitler could never win the war. They dismissed him without comment, but they called him back the next day and this time, rather than two officers, there was four. And they asked him to repeat the Bible study he had given the day before. Well, once again, he asked, is this on the record or off the record? And they they all took their helmets off and so he spoke freely for the next three hours, point by point. He went through the prophecy that we are looking at in brief right here. Once again, at the end, his superior officers looked at these 
other two officers that had come in, these two mystery individuals, he was later to find out that they were both history professors and they confirmed everything from history that Franz Hassel had been sharing. He was dismissed, but from that point forward, as they are advancing into Russia, his superior officers begin to stockpile food and fuel for their retreat. Now, we all know the story of what happened when the tides turned and the Russians started to push the Germans back out. So many Germans, they all wanted to get back to the American lines. So many didn't make it. Franz Hassel's unit did. The Russians snapping at their heels the whole way. Why did they make it when so many others were unable to do so? The reason is because they hung their lives, their existence, they hung on the prophecy of this book right here. A prophecy that's two and a half thousand years old. You can do the same. You see, this book has a lot to say about the end. In fact, a third of this book, and it's a rather large book, is made up of prophecy. That's what makes it unique amongst the holy books that are in our world today. And prophecy by nature is something that demands to be studied, to be investigated and to be put to the test. Well, you can put this one to the test. So we've got to come to the best bit now. The bit that we haven't covered yet. You're all wondering about the rock. What is the rock that hits this image on its feet, smashes it to a thousand pieces and fills the whole world? What could that possibly be? The Bible says, this is the best bit of it right here, in the days of these kings, in the days down here where the kingdom will be divided, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and it will consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. This is going to be Jesus' kingdom of love established. For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. Two and a half thousand years ago, Daniel stood in front of Nebuchadnezzar the most powerful individual on the planet in those days. He gave the interpretation of the dream and he stated with absolute confidence that the dream was certain and the interpretation sure. We can read that same prophecy two and a half thousand years later and not a detail of that prophecy has failed. That dream, is just as certain, it is just as sure today as it was back then. Nebuchadnezzar died at the end of his very long reign after prophesying the end of the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus the Persian came to power, reads the prophecies of Scripture, honours them by building a temple in Jerusalem. Alexander the Great comes along, he's shown the prophecies and he honours them 
by worshipping in the temple that is in Jerusalem. These were men, Nebuchadnezzar got to see this much of the prophecy. Cyrus this much, Alexander this much. We get to see the prophecy almost in its entirety. We have two and a half thousand years of evidence on which we base our faith and our trust in the reality of the return of Jesus Christ. There is only one detail left. That is the coming of Jesus Christ. This dream is just as sure as it has ever been. And the coming of Christ is closer than it has ever been. My question to you today is very, very simple. Do you want to be ready for Jesus to come back? May God bless you in a very special way as you continue to study His Word. You've been listening to The End. For more information about this program or any of this show's free offers, visit www.theend.digital.com.